This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Our Father, we thank you for the blessed hope. And what a blessed hope it is. I'll ask that you'll take the food we just had, <clears throat> turn it into glucose quickly, send it to our brains, send it to our forebrains that we might understand, send it to our temporal lobes that our emotions might be right, send it to our memory that we will remember these things. We, we ask for your Holy Spirit to bless these efforts but the human mind is so weak, but you are the teacher. We invite thy presence in this place today. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, some of this will be repetitive because uh, some will be listening for the first time on Audiverse. And so, again, the lectures are all on tinyurl.com forward slash Daniel Talks. What you will see in that will be all six studies. You cannot follow the studies with these talks. They're just more information. It's like giving you a small book. It's about 150 pages. On that link, you will also have, you'll see something that says table of contents. Obviously, that just is the table of contents to these studies that you can go home and find things quicker because it's not verse by verse. And then lastly, what you will see is study outlines. If you're at home, um, you'll want to have a study outline in front of you, and just like you in the audience have study outline number three for today's talk. Our talks will be following pretty much the study outlines. And so, uh, that, so you'll have a study outline in front of you and the talks, and that will pretty much get you through this talk. <clears throat> now, you want to probably talk, listen to these in order. We left you off on our last talk about Daniel 7. And we, again, three times, little horn, persecutes, judgment, and then the end. Now, I left out a detail in Daniel 7. There was a scene in which the father was on his throne, and this curious mention was made of wheels. Does God need handicapped parking tags? Wheels. It means that the throne can move. Big, big foundation right there. The throne can move. And where it takes us is to Daniel 8, the Day of Atonement. We talked about judgment in the last lecture, and we talked about Daniel 8. Now, some of you in this room, in about four minutes, you won't like me. Maybe about one or two of you, maybe, if, if, my, if my experience is correct. <clears throat> In about three more minutes after that, maybe about three or four of you in this room, you won't like me. But then the ones previously who didn't like me will like me again. And you think, what in the world? And then the rest of you will be thinking, what in the world is he talking about? And that's the best part. And you'll know what I mean. The ones that know what I'm talking about, you're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't like this guy. <laughs> and you'll know what I mean. All I can say is this. Fortunately, you have a speaker today with zero credentials. Only credential I have is the Word of God. And so I have to be subject to the same criteria, criteria as any other speaker you listen to, including Elder Wilson tomorrow and Elder Finley in his talks today and tomorrow and Sabbath. And so I have zero credentials to speak except by the Word of God. I'm not a very interesting person. I'd say that proudly. But the Bible makes it interesting. I'm a very quiet person, believe it or not. But the Bible makes me speak. And I really have nothing to say that makes, well, would make people pay to travel to hear me speak. Honestly, I really don't. But the Bible says people are traveling east and north for the word of God. And you have. Unfortunately, it's before the time that Amos was speaking enough, by the way. So let's begin. Daniel chapter 8. <clears throat> the theme of Daniel 7 is 
Who will you serve? The theme of Daniel 8, <clears throat> let's talk about that. In Daniel 8, you read about, sorry about my artwork, I can't do artwork either. You read about a ram, this is a little ram horn, okay? You read, I'm pointing to the screen for those who are listening. You read about a ram, and th then you, did I say ram? You read about a ram, then you read about a goat. I forgot about the goat, okay? And then you read about four horns. Then you read about this little horn that was broken up into two parts. <clears throat> you read about the daily. And what that word is, daily, it's in the notes. It's just a simple word, Hebrew word, tamid. means continual. And it's followed by a word, sacrifice, which was supplied, as Ellen White said, and we recognize it. Daily means tamid, or continual. The altar, you continually sacrifice things. The bread was continually, I put references in the studies, was continually present before God. The lampstands were continually burning. Tamid, the incense was continually burning as well, ascending for God. And the priest continually had bore the sins and names of Israel on their forehead and on his breastplate. That's Tamid, every single time from Exodus 25 to 30. Tamid, Tamid, Tamid. So let's talk about his ministry. So we have a daily ministry or continual ministry. Some people are starting to hate me already. And then you have records of sins in the sanctuary. Do you all remember where the records of sin were in the sanctuary? Right here on this curtain. You're exactly right. Oh, by the way, keep in mind, someone will confront you about this. Oh, this sanctuary and this record sanctuary wasn't, how can we clean with blood and all that stuff? Remember, dirty and sinful blood, according to Ezekiel 28, 18, defiles the sanctuary. That was defiled. Jesus' blood, was it dirty and sinful? It was clean. It, what does it do? By the way, okay, you'll put, tuck that away. You'll want to know that a little bit later somewhere down the road, okay? That's why Jesus cleanses with his blood. Our blood defiles, by the way, okay? Anyway, <clears throat> you have, <clears throat> excuse me, ram, he goat, four horns, here and here. You have a, this is a priest, by the way. I'm pointing to the sanctuary for those listening. You have a daily ministration of the high priest, continual, and you have the record of sin. Oh, we call transgression. It's all in Daniel 8. This, my friends, is Daniel 8 in a nutshell. You have the ram who is Verse 20, exactly, Medo-Persia. The goat who is Greece, verse 21 in chapter 8. The four horns, which you not listed, but came out from Greece, okay? The four divisions of Greece, okay? Four divisions. This little horn was divided into two sections, so to speak, a daily and a transgression. The daily was pagan Rome. I have a study in the, in study six, the end of it in the appendix, we'll talk about the daily if you're interested. Pagan Rome. And transgression is the papacy. This is Daniel 8. It is sanctuary symbols representing pagan nations. Do you see that? This is Daniel 8. Once again, let me repeat. It is sanctuary symbols. Now, I, I, I know somebody, oh, that's not what I heard about that daily. You know, just read Appendix 6. And fortunately, I'm nothing. You know, I have no credential. Just, so read it. If it doesn't make sense to you or if, if it's refutable, that's fine. Because it's the evidence you're looking for. It's the sanctuary symbols representing a line of pagan nations. Okay. This first symbol, it pushed 
This next symbol did a lot is stamped upon, it cast down. I'll just put stamped. The goat stamped upon. This next symbol, the four horns which are on the altar of incense and sacrifice, just came up, it said. Came up. And the last two in verse 13, when you read daily sacrifice, the sacrifice was supplied, Thomas Newton thinks, and I agree, it should have read, how long should this vision concerning the daily desolation and the transgression of desolation, meaning that there are both desolating powers, desolator and desolator. The first desolator desolated the literal Jerusalem. The pagan Rome desolated literal Jerusalem? You know who Titus was, right, in AD 70, right? The second desolator tries to desolate spiritual Israel. I have a study on Daniel 11 about the abomination of desolation in the appendix. Not a very complicated, well, I take that back. It's an interesting topic. We won't get into it, unfortunately. But I have a, a short study, about just two pages long, talks about the abomination of desolation. Even if you don't agree with all the facts, I think the information will be helpful to kind of put together abomination of desolation. If you have a question about between lectures, feel free to ask. It's in the appendix of Daniel Number five. So anyway, this is the, just the facts of the prophecy, okay? Ram, goat, four horns, little horn, which is broken into two, daily desolator and transgression of, desol transgression of desolation, okay? One, so the first three, it overturns and overturns and overturns God's people, you know? Just punishes, punishes, punishes them. The last two, even worse, they desolate, they desolate. So this is just a bad news chapter so far. When Daniel sees that, it's like overturn, 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 desolator, desolator. It's like, oh. And angels are speaking to each other in verse 13. And they're saying, how long will be this vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underground? The thing is, this is a long time for trouble going on. And Daniel must have been thinking the same thoughts. Because you know, you know how Daniel 8.14 begins, right? And he said unto me, to who? Daniel. Two saints were talking, but the reply came to Daniel. He's thinking in his mind, how long is this going to happen? Overturn, 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 desolation, desolation. This is a bad, sorrowful chapter so far, you know? You see, the brilliance of this chapter God was already seeding in Daniel's mind the answer before the answer came by the symbols that were given. The psalmist Asaph, in Psalm 73, verse 3, said, I envied the foolish. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it just made him sad. Until verse 17, he said, Until I went to the, enter the sanctuary of the Lord, and I saw their end, and I understood their end. Do you see that? Desolation, I mean, overturning, 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 desolation, desolation, and the question is asked, how long, O oh Lord, is this going to last? God was already giving Daniel the answer by simply bringing the sanctuary to his mind, wasn't he? Already. He didn't even begin by saying, under 2,300 days, and Daniel was already starting to open and say, I see. Now, the key to prophecy, and keep this, tuck this away, is time and place, by the way. At the end, I'm going to ask you what time is it and what place is it, and you're going to have an answer for me that's going to answer the angel's question, how long shall the sanctuary be cleansed, until the sanctuary is cleansed? I mean, how long shall the vision be? But before we do, turn with me in your Bible to Deuteronomy. Chapter 31. We're going to talk a little bit here. The sanctuary. You guys ever been to, on a roller coaster before? I, um, I've been, it's been about 15 years since I've been on a roller coaster. And, you know, the, you remember, you guys like scary roller coaster rides, some of you? <clears throat> uh, you know how the beginning, how do, how do every scary roller coaster ride start? They, did they just some jumped you, but most of them just kind of, right? 
And so the first two talks have been kind of like that. We went up the stairs, and you're thinking, oh, I can do this. Yeah, this is good. I can do this, okay? But in a few minutes, we're going to go, shoom, okay? And we'll catch you all together in it. Um, but it's going to get a little bit heavier at this point on, okay? But the, the ride is going to, my, my, my language won't speed up, but the ride is going to speed up just a little bit at this point, okay? Deuteronomy, chapter 31. Now, the sanctuary was part of a law called the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law had like meats and drinks and holy days, new moons and Sabbaths. You know that one, Tama, right? It had other governing ceremonial law too, like where to, um, how to take care of lepers or whatever else, but, uh, or how people should marry, what should you eat. But in terms of the ceremonial law having to do with the worship service, it was meats, drinks, holy days, um, new moon, Sabbaths, okay? Now, if you look in your Bibles, Genesis, I mean, Deuteronomy chapter 31, let me turn to it. And today, this first lecture is going to be the first one where we really start to crack into great controversy, by the way, okay? Verse 26, speaking of the ceremonial law. Take this book of the law, it's talking, if you read the preceding verses, it's talking about the ceremonial law, as we just discussed, and put it in these, where? Where? Side of the ark. There was only one thing inside the ark. It was the Ten Commandments, according to 1 Kings 8 and 9. I know in Hebrews 9 it says Aaron's budding rod and uh, manna. Um, I think the article should have been on the side of the ark, actually. Um, but according to 1 Kings, the only thing that was in the ark was the Ten Commandments. But anyway, so this law was on the side of the ark. Let's go on. Of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be for a what? Witness against thee. So let's cover what we just learned. It is a book on the side of the ark, and it was a what? A witness against thee, okay? Book on the side of the ark as a witness against. Back up to verse 9. And Moses wrote this law. I'm going to stop right there. Now, they didn't have big pens back then. So how did Moses write things? Did he write it typing? He wrote it with his hand writing. Maybe he got a stone and put it in ink and he wrote things, okay? Maybe he had scribes to help him. So it was written with handwriting, Moses' handwriting. So let's review. It was a book in the side of the ark that was a witness against them and it was written with hand writing. This new moons, meat, drinks, holy days, and Sabbaths, okay? Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> Excuse me, 10. There is something in 8, but let's go to 10. I like 10 better. I believe in my notes I put 8 as well. Not the outline, but the actual notes. And I put all the verses in there. There are probably about 5, 6, 10 times more verses in these study guides than what we're covering. So they're all there for you to kind of enjoy and review. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, is this talking about the ceremonial law or the moral law? Has to be ceremonial, just looking at the context, before and after. You understand what I'm saying? You read about, do you read more about Ten Commandments or sanctuary in the verses before and after? Sanctuary, sacrifices and stuff like that, okay? So it was, what, it was called a what? A, for law having a what? Shadow. Let's review. It's a book. It is... At the side of the ark, it was a witness against them. It was written in what kind of things? It was written in handwriting, and it was a sh shadow. Things to come. Colossians. Let's look at uh, the fav our favorite Adventist verse, Colossians chapter 2. You know what? We tend to avoid verses like Colossians 2, which I will be just reading, because we get attacked by it a lot but there is a precious gospel truth in this passage that we get attacked with. Let me read it for you. Verse 14. <clears throat> Blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, hmm. which was contrary to, it, to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to where? The cross. Let me skip to 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath day, verse 17, 
which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, students, intellects, what law are we talking about? It has to be ceremonial. You'll have this verse brought up to you someday if you do enough Bible studies. And when you do, you can say, praise the Lord you brought that book up. I want to share with you an exciting gospel message now because you're going to share with them, maybe, hopefully, by Lord's grace, what we're going to talk about next after you got this part all the way, the obvious part all the way. The obvious is good, but I like deeper. I like what it's really saying. It is saying that the ceremonial law was nailed to the cross. But, oh, by the way, just the imagery, think of the imagery. It is as hard to make this passage, passage talk about the Ten Commandment law as it would be to physically take the tables of stone, lift them up on the cross, hold it up with your hip, get a nail, and nail the Ten Commandment laws on a cross. Do you even see that imagery, how hard that would be to work? Even the imagery doesn't work. You know what I'm saying? Can you get a book and a nail and nail a book to the cross? You certainly can. You certainly can. I mean, the imagery doesn't even fit. You have to hate the law of God almost to want to nail that thing on the cross. Almost like you hate your car and try to run into a, a pole. You know, you have to hate the law of God to want to have to. Think about that effort, that mental gymnastics to get that Ten Commandment law of God on a cross with a nail. How much work would that take? You'd be up there all night trying to do that one. People spend all night long trying to think of how to do that, by the way. Leave it alone. God never nailed to the cross. Now, I'm speaking to the choir here, but this is not the point of today's talk. If, did part of the ceremonial law, especially the worship part of it, was part of the worship service of the Ten Commandments nailed to the cross? Did I just, I said a confusing question. Was part of the worship service of the ceremonial law nailed to the cross, was part of it, or was all of it? Was there any part of the sacrifice that we still do today? That was all nailed to the cross. It was all a shadow, right? I don't remember the last time I took a lamb to the church. It was all nailed to the cross. If it was, that means all of it points to the cross. If it all points to the cross, that means we ought to study it all if we want to understand the cross better. What are we saying when we say preach the cross, lift high the cross? Do we wear, jewel do we wear jewelry and earrings and put it on our doorstep? the cross and we want to preach the cross? What should you do if you want to be able to more capably preach the cross? You better understand the sanctuary. You better understand the sanctuary really well. That's why in Malachi, by the way, in the end time, it says you better read a little bit about the writings of Moses. The law of Moses says, I take that back. What was he referring to? Study the sanctuary because at the end time, we're going to have to teach the cross in a more applicable way than it's ever been done. It's Malachi 4, by the way. I think it's verse 5. I forget exactly. So, this answer in the cross. Turn with me in your Bibles. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 9. 8, excuse me, 8. What does that have to do with what we're talking about today? If the sanctuary service and its furniture are a shadow of the cross, do you think that the prophecy about the sanctuary service might, might be a shadow or at least connected to some kind of time prophecy about the cross? Just saying something out, throwing something out there. Do you think that a time, the greatest time prophecy concerning the sanctuary might have a time prophecy associated with it about the cross? If, just throwing it out there. Shall we search from Genesis to Revelation to possibly find a prophecy in the Bible to be a companion of Daniel 8, which talks about the sanctuary? Where should we go? Should we get out our concordances right now and divvy up the books of the Bible and each of us get one or two books so we can find this prophecy? Maybe it's out there. Or maybe it's just a Daniel chapter 9 about the cross. 
Now, that's not evidence. That isn't, that eight and nine are connected. There is actually evidence. And for the sake of time, we won't cover it in this talk. It'll be the next, if we have time. If I finish early, it'll be this talk, but by the looks of things, it will be the next talk. But eight and nine go together. That's a fact. Now, next lecture or sometime, I'm gonna try to squeeze that in. You, oh, that, my Sela, huh? Here we go, here's Sela again. Remember what this means? Kick it up a notch, or think of these things. Eight and nine go together, by the way. Eight and nine go together. We are the only church, probably, that believes that, by the way, okay? Just like the peas and carrots, you know, or just like um, sanctuary and cross, eight and nine go together, and we'll prove it, either this one or the next lecture, if we, whatever time we have available. Now, <clears throat> I'm gonna jump past that and talk about nine briefly. This, I'm gonna take a side note. If you fall asleep, this might be the time to fall asleep. The 70-week prophecy is a tough one, okay? And we're going to cover it in just 15 minutes. You do need to wake up about 15 minutes for the end where I put it all together about the sanctuary and the answer to Daniel about 2,300 days. But I feel as though 70 weeks have to be covered because it is a, probably one of the most challenging chapters in the Bible. You know, the prophecy of 70 weeks from Daniel 9 through verses 24 to 27. The reason why I thought it important to bring it up in the midst of this chapter 8 that I want to talk about only is because um, there's a verse in chapter 9, verse 27, which someone has written about, many people have written about, and he's made millions of dollars making movies and writing books about Daniel 9, 27. In Jesus' days, in Jesus' day, he cast out devils. They called him Beelzebub. In our day today, Daniel 9, 27, we know is talking about Jesus again, and they're calling him Antichrist in Daniel 9, 27, and they're making millions off of it. Now, before we get Daniel 9, Daniel 9 is complicated. So for 10 seconds, stand, stretch, take two big gulps of oxygen, and sit. Because we're taking a large, large sidetrack Daniel 9, especially after lunch. Stand, stretch, two big gulps of oxygen, and not too hard so that you knock out the person next to you. I think it's okay for, if you have to fall asleep after lunch, the next 15 minutes are the time to. I just thought, again, it's very important to cover this because it's a challenging passage. You will need to wake up about the last 10 minutes of the talk, though, because that's the punchline of Daniel 8, by the way, okay? If you came here for any good reason, the end of the talk will be wrapping things up. Anyway, Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27 says this. There is an opening, Daniel 9, 24, there is a middle section, Daniel 9, 25, and 26, and part 27, some will say. And then there is a conclusion, Daniel 27, which kind of um, rehashes what's been covered in 24, 25, and 26. The reason why people have made verse 27 Antichrist is because they read it in linear order. Everybody believes 26 is talking about Jesus. It, probably because it says Messiah, you know? You can't get around that too hard, too easily. But 27, everyone calls that Antichrist except for this little Adventist church. Let me turn to Daniel 9, by the way. Again, understand the structure. Elder Stephen Bohr has an excellent, excellent study on Daniel 9, by the way. Uh, some of this borrowed from his materials as well. It's one of the best I've seen. Again, when I drop a name, it's not because of the author is substantial, it's the material. I I've never read, I haven't read too many authors I agree with everything that they say, even Adventist authors about Daniel Revelation, which makes me think I have a lot wrong. <laughs> but I like the evidence that's given. You understand? The evidence. And so um, when I drop names and say this and that book, please, it's the evidence, not the author, okay? Just look at the evidence they provide. So the opening in verse 24 has six points. It talks about finishing transgression. Let me read it. <clears throat> Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. I would have gotten an F in grammar if I used that many ends in, ands in one sentence. It's a lot of things. It's confusing. It's, it, it lists six things. <clears throat> it lists 
finish transgression. Transgression is like the, the strongest word for sin. It's like a total all-out rebellion. That's the word used in 8.13 about the transgression of desolation, by the way. Just a rebellion, outright rebellion. Make an end of sin. Some people refer that to meaning the end of sacrifice. I'm not so sure because it's a different Hebrew word at the end of this chapter. So I think it just means Jesus' um, what he's going to do with sin by his death. Okay? Reconciliation. We know Jesus reconciled God to man. Bring in righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6. And so I list some others. Seal of the prophecy. That word prophecy can also be translated prophets. I believe it's talking about either two things. One is talking about Stephen being the last prophet that was sent to the Jews. Or talking about prophecy, meaning this 70-week prophecy will end. But that's kind of redundant. Anyway. And anoint the most holy. In the sanctuary service, the sanctuary and the high priests were anointed before entering into their service. What I want you to take away from what I just talked about now, you can read about the details in the notes online, okay, is finish the transgression. There was only one thing that was asked of the Jewish nation. Stop your rebellion. All these other things are going to happen. Make an end of sin, reconciliation, anoint the most holy, whatnot. But just stop your rebellion. You have 70 weeks. Please, please stop your rebellion. Now, the body. Now, the body in summary is this. It's what happens to the city of Jerusalem and it's what happens to the Messiah. And it just keeps going back and forth, back and forth. In the study, you'll see I, I underline what, when it's talking about the Messiah, not the outline, but the online study, if you want to pull it up later. And it talks about the city, Messiah, city. Almost literally goes back and forth, back and forth like that. It's just talking about in verses 25 to 26, it talks about the Messiah and it talks about the city. Now, I want to bring your attention to verse 25, by the way. Now, remember I told you about the math? I, prophecy maybe does appeal to me a little bit because I love math and history, but it doesn't, you don't have to be experts in math and history, but you ought to know a few verses, know a few dates. And again, this is the dry part of the talk because numbers tend to not be everybody's strength. From the, but this is key, verse 25. It, it tells us what? A beginning point, right? From the what? Going forth, it gives you a beginning point. It actually gives you a climax even before the end to make sure you don't miss the end point, okay? The beginning point is this. If you're not good at dates, I'm going to tell you something very important. The beginning point is 457 BC. That's the decree of Artaxerxes. Now, I'm going to tell you something to help you remember some of this. You should know that there were actually four decrees. Your non-Adventist friends will tell you that too. There was one in 536... <clears throat> By Cyrus. There was one in 520 by Darius. Not the Darius we heard of before. This is Darius um, Hystasis. I might be butchering that name. In 520. There was Artaxerxes' decree in 457 BC. And there was a repeat of Artaxerxes' decree in 444. And you read about that in Nehemiah. Four decrees. Now, don't fall asleep yet. If you came this far, you might as well, might as well just listen to the rest of this Daniel 9 part of it. If you have to fall asleep, now would be a good time, though. You'd be re-energized for the end, and you want to be re-energized for the end of this talk. You should know this. Every single one of those other decrees, after 483 years, when the 69 weeks ends, when it's marking out Jesus' life, other than 457 would end outside of Jesus' life. It's almost as if God cleared off the space. Make sure you wouldn't miss it. 536, 520, 444, you, they don't fall within Jesus' lifetime. Only 457 falls right in A.D. 27. Do you understand that? By the way, the first two, okay, only 457 B.C., when it says, when it says seven weeks and 60 and two, I mean, six, excuse me, three score and two weeks, 69 weeks in other words, that, I know, you can read it later, trust me, it says that, something like that. 69 weeks passes 483 days. 483 years, if you took 483 years from any of those other dates, it would fall at a time when Jesus wasn't even born yet, or it would fall at a time after Jesus had already died. In other words, it's skipping the Messiah, any of those other decrees, if you added the time that Daniel was told to add to it. You know? If you add 450, excuse me, if you add 483 years to 536, it would put you well before his birthday. I mean, his date of birth, so to speak. You can't get to his lifetime, in other words. That's what I'm and if you haven't got that much, ask me after the lecture, okay? And we'll go over. Remember, this is accessory. This is icing on the cake, okay? But don't miss this. 
The first two decrees, don't look, forget about the dates for a second. The first two decrees rebuilt the sanctuary only. And this one says rebuild what? what the verse says what? Restore and to build. So the first was restore a sanctuary, 536, 520 says restore a sanctuary because no one was doing anything. And so Darius says, come on guys. And five years later, they did restore the sanctuary in 515 BC. And I know, I know history is terrible. <laughs> um, Artaxerxes said, you can build up your walls again. If you read about it in Ezra chapter 7, Ezra chapter 9. Restore everything back. You can govern yourselves. It's clear as day. It has to be that. By date, it falls on the Messiah. And by the decree itself, you can, you can govern yourselves. It's not just the sanctuary and a church you're making. You can make a whole city and a whole government. You understand what I'm saying? You should know those things. Uh, I won't put a sale. I got to save the sailors for really, really high points. But keep in mind this. This is key. What was the nationality of the king that made this decree? You can come and offer up your suggestions or answer this question. What was the nationality of the king, of the kings of this decree, of these decrees, all four of them? Persians. Do you remember Daniel chapter 6? Was Darius a friend or foe of Daniel? And when Darius realized what happened to Daniel, why didn't he just revoke the decree? You cannot change the law of the Medes and Persians. Remember that? said, so you cannot change the law of the Medes and Persians. Remember Esther? Ahasuerus made a decree. He married a Jew. But why couldn't he change the decree? You cannot change the decree of the Medes and Persians. That's what they were known for. God made the greatest prophecy in our Bible begin with a decree from a date that could not be changed. Man could not change this date. They tried. They cannot change this date. It's fixed. The time of the beginning was fixed. The time of our Messiah was fixed. The time of his um, crucifixion was fixed. His entering into his most holy place is fixed. His soon coming is fixed. God began it with a decree. More solid than even the decree of the Medes and Persians. Man cannot change it. Medes and Persians. As a side note, study it for yourself someday. Think about this. Because of a decree that man could not change, the, the prophecy ended 70 weeks of, of Messiah dying. But Jesus came to die for a law that could not change. Didn't he? By the way, this is a side note, by the way. He came to die for a law that could not change. Even the, the writer of the law himself could not change that law either, by the way, just as a side note. But let's go on. Let's look at some other things in this, okay? I want to get to the meat of this. 27 and 20. This is what you ought to know because every other, I take that back, 90% of Christian churches believe that if they, conservative Christian churches, I don't need this anymore, believe that 26 is talking about Messiah, 27 is talking about Antichrist. And it's based upon one word, in verse 27, or one phrase in 27. It says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading abominations, he shall make a desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. The one phrase I think people point to the most is, And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Well, he's desolating the church. It must be an antichrist. You see, there is this rumor that this fella, after all the righteous are in heaven, is going to look and see who's around still. Hmm, a bunch of Jewish people. All the Christians are gone. And he's going to make a covenant with these Jews. And for three and a half years, they're going to build a grand sanctuary, Solomon, better than Solomon's sanctuary. And say, hey, they're going to make this mighty. And in the midst of the week, dum, 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 antichrist comes. And he starts persecuting the Jews three and a half years. Persecuting, persecuting, persecuting until Jesus comes back to rescue the converted Jews. And that's the story. And they'll stick with it. It's made some people a lot of money. Let's go over that real quick. Now, in verse 24 and 25, I'll read in black here. Do you read, do you see in verse um, 24, where it talks about anointing. Do you see that? 
Um, I'm just going to have to skip what anointing is. This is baptism. It, it, the Bible study is, Jesus' baptism is the anointing. It's just in your studies, by the way. You can pick it out. The Holy Spirit going on to Jesus represents his anointing, by the way. Uh, just kind of skip it. It's in, it's in John and Luke. You can just read it for yourselves. Okay. Anointing. And do you read in verse 26 where it says, after 69 weeks he's cut off? Do you see that? Do you see, do you see that in 26, because following his death, and because of, resi- because of his death, there was a destruction of some sort. In this case, talking about destruction of Jerusalem. That's in 26. Everyone with us? And there's pretty good consensus about what it's talking about. So there's an anointing of Christ. He's cut off, most accept that as his death. And then there's a destruction of Jerusalem. Now, if you read on, in verse 27, it says this. Do you read where it says he'll make a covenant with many? And if you're listening on Audioverse, um, just on the board, wrote section one, anointing, followed by cut off, followed by destruction, in that order. In verse 27, remember I said 27 is a conclusion or kind of rehashes things? There's a covenant he makes. Sacrifice and oblation ceases. Do you see that in verse 27? What's that talking about? Sacrifice and oblation, by the way. You remember Matthew 27? I mean, in John where it says, it is finished. In Matthew 27, the temple veil was rent in twain from top to bottom. No more sacrifices, right? Sacrifice oblation is talking about his death. Okay? And do you see after that, it talks about desolation. Do you see that? You see, 27 is a repeat and enlargement, or not enlarge, take that back. It's a repeat and summary of 24, 25, and 26. It's repeating the same thing, and I'll show you why. It's not talking about two separate things. It's talking about Jesus. This says he was anointed. This says he was, uh, he was making strong the covenant. He was bringing back life. He's trying to, he said, I've come to fulfill the law, you know? He's bringing back the covenant to these people. And then it says cut off. It also says in 27, sacrifice and oblation cease. Talking about the same thing, okay? It says there's destruction, and in verse 27, there is also desolation. Talking about the same thing. Anointed, cut off, destruction. Covenant, sacrifice, destruction. It's the same pattern. Jesus' life, his death, and the fall of Jerusalem. Do you see that? Once again, Jesus' life, his death, the fall of Jerusalem. It just repeats that in verse 27. How do I know that? We're going to cover that in five minutes. Then you all really need to wake up because we're going to hit Daniel 8 for the last few minutes with the conclusion, okay? How do I know that? First off, this is the key right here. You should understand that no time in Daniel is the word covenant about an evil antichrist and God's people. Never once. Every time you read about covenant, you read about God and his people. What on earth are you doing here talking about an antichrist making a covenant? That's, that's why I'd nearly call it blasphemous. Wouldn't you call it? Isn't that kind of close to blasphemy or abomination, I guess? It is always talking about God and his people. Next one, sacrifice and oblation. That word is zebak and mincha. Sacrifice is talking about sacrifice, blood sacrifice. Mincha or oblation is talking about the, the uh, non-blood sacrifice. Those, all, those were both sanctuary terms. Sacrifice and oblation to cease. Again, Messiah was cut off, sacrifice and oblations. It's talking about sanctuary terms. And lastly, abomination of desolation. Jesus told us what this is. So we don't have to even figure it out. Matthew chapter 24, we should know this. Now, I actually have a study at the end of, I think, study five in the appendix about the abomination of desolation. Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Verse 15 and 16. Thank you, 24. Thank you so much. Fifteen and sixteen. When you shall therefore see the what? Abomination and desolation. Hmm. I wonder who spoke about abomination and desolation. We don't have to guess. Spoken by of by. Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Let, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. What's it talking about? Before 
Jerusalem is destroyed. I'm going to give you a sign. When you see the abomination of desolation, what does it say? Flee. Flee. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. And when you shall see the Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Verse 21. Then let them which are in Judea, what does it say? Flee to the mountains. Are we talking about the same thing? Jesus said in one area, when you see the abomination of desolation, Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, when you see Jerusalem, what? Compassed with armies. In other words, the holy hills around Jerusalem are considered holy. The Roman standards were called pagan. When they placed the Roman standards on a holy hill, that was called an abomination. It was a sign for the Christians in Jerusalem to flee. And we're told not one Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. It was their sign. In other words, Jesus already clarified it for us, what this abomination is talking about in Daniel 9, right? It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. What year? A.D. 70. Anointing, cut off, destruction, destruction in verses 23, 20, 24, 26. 27, covenant, him being cut off, destruction. It's just repeating the same pattern. Now, some of you might have questions about abomination, desolation, because... Daniel 11 talks about too in different light. It does have end time ramifications as well. and there, It does mean a little bit more. We just can't, don't have the time to get into. Um, please, we covered a lot with this one. I felt it really necessary because this pattern, you, can, you have to see, repeats itself in both sections because that's the one that people are going to tell you. It's going to make your palms sweat a little bit. It repeats itself. And those four things that I told you that are, I should put this up for that one. Those four reasons why I think they're not talking about Antichrist, you should know, okay? Covenant, abomination, sacrifice, and oblation, you should know those, okay? Over, oh, last, I said four. That word overspreading, but lastly in verse 27, 20, um, it means flooding. Literally, it means creating wings. In verse 27 of verse, uh, chapter 9, where it says the overspreading of abominations, it says, this is the last one, we'll go back to 8, and we'll wrap it up, okay? Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where it says the, and for the overspreading of abominations. That word overspreading is used also in Daniel 11. It, it's literally flood or have, creating wings. When you read about the destruction of Jerusalem, it, it always describes this as a flood, just like it, when you read about the Assyrian attack on Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 8. It's like overspreading flood almost coming to the neck. When you read about the destruction of spiritual Jerusalem in the end of Daniel 11, we're talking about a flood. Again, it uses the same word. This phrase, flood, 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 is always seems to be the description that God places when Jerusalem is about to fall. Okay, overspreading that word. We're going to bring you back to Daniel chapter 8 real quickly now, and we're going to close right with this thought, though. I, that was really a long aside, because it's really essential we know Daniel 9 and 7 week from that perspective. I know that was a harder one, but we should know that. Going back to Daniel 8, I want to tell you, really, I erased the sanctuary, so you just have to do your mental memory about the sanctuary, okay? There was a time and a place that Daniel 8, 14 was bringing us to, okay? A time and a place. What I mean by that is this. <clears throat> In the Jewish calendar, there were seven um, feasts, okay? And then there were also, in the Jewish sanctuary, three compartments, okay? We're going to talk about the compartments really quickly, we're going to talk about the feast real quickly, and we're going to talk about the answer to Daniel's question. Let's talk about the feast really fast. In this, the spring feasts had, what was the first spring feast? Passover, okay? They, now, Jesus died on what day? Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, don't turn to it yet, just, it's in the notes. It says Jesus is our Passover. The Passover represents Christ's death, or Christ's broken body, Okay? The very next day was actually a feast day. It was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus just rested. Read the study about the quote I put about the rest, by the way, when you have a chance. Jesus just rested. This one turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5. I am going to go about 10 minutes over on this talk. I do apologize. I want to stick with time, but I, I think it's important. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of, what? Sincerity and truth. In other words, the feast of unleavened bread represents the efficacy of Jesus' death and rest. In other words, it actually does a change in our hearts, okay? He died for us. So Passover represents Jesus' broken body. Feast of unleavened bread represents the efficacy, the power of Jesus' death and rest in our lives. It can actually change our hearts and make us sincere and truthful, okay? The next day, what was the next feast? Hmm? Fruit, first fruits. It represents his resurrection. Jesus promises the resurrection, okay? The next one followed 50 days later. What, did, what was it? Pentecost. Now, in Matthew 13, it said the Son of Man is the person that sows the seeds, right? And 50 days after the, his resurrection was Pentecost, when how many souls were converted? 3,000. In other words, Pentecost represents, at the end of the harvest, people giving plentiful, plentiful offerings because of the full grains that they had received. In other words, Pentecost represents the Holy Spirit's power to make Jesus' words that he sowed during his life powerful. So Passover, Jesus' broken body, unleavened bread, the power and efficacy of Jesus' death and rest. First fruit, Jesus' power to resurrect us. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's power to make Jesus' words powerful. And then we had three fall feasts. We had one, it's not really a feast, but you had these feasts of trumpets. Trumpets, many times in the Bible, represents that something is going to happen, like a warning, okay? And so in this passage, it means Jesus is going to do something. And what was it after the seven trumpets, I mean, the feast of trumpets, what did he do? What was that feast? Day of Atonement. Jesus is going to cleanse our sins and cleanse the sanctuary. Day of Atonement. And then finally, what was the last feast? The Feast of Tabernacles. In Revelation 21 and 22, God will make a tabernacle with us. Jesus will take us home. Do you see that? Now, I want you to bring your special attention to Day of Atonement. Turn the Bibles to Leviticus 23, 27, 28. I told you this one was a little meatier, but it's important. We ought to know this. Leviticus chapter 23, 27 and 28. And we'll probably be done in about five minutes. Leviticus chapter 23, 27 and 28. <clears throat> also, on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Verse 28. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord. Four things. Now, by faith, we follow Jesus, and he's cleansing the sanctuary, and he's confessing our sins right now. But what were the people doing? They were doing four things. Verse 27. It says, On the tenth day of the seventh month, there excuse me, <clears throat> it shall be a what? Holy convocation. In other words, what were they doing? They were, what's another word for convocation? They were, what do you do when you convocate? You worship, okay? Two, what were they doing? It says that you shall afflict your souls. According to Isaiah 58, afflicting and fasting is selfless sacrifice or selfless work or selfless service, Okay? It's a long Bible study, but just, you don't have to trust me on that. We well, don't have to trust me on that one. Read Isaiah 58 later, okay? Afflict your soul. So they were involved in selfless service. Next, it said, what did they do? They made an offering, right? Now, we know offering is money and change, but what does Romans 12 say to you, us about present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable? An offering means surrender, okay? You're surrendering your money, you're really surrendering yourself, a representative. And lastly, verse 28 it says, and you shall do no work. What is it called? A day what you do no work. What's that called? You're, called, you're resting. What are the four things that people were doing? They were worshiping. They were involved in selfless service. They were surrendered and they were 
resting. Okay? On the, what day was this called? The day of atonement. Now, 90 seconds, we're going to go through the sanctuary furniture. Jesus is the Lamb of God, altar. Jesus offers us the water of life, entering into the holy place. Jesus is the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. And remember, Jesus taught us how to pray because we know that the incense represents the prayer of the saints. By the way, Jesus also said, we are the light, we are bread, and we, and <clears throat> and we ought to be praying. He says, pray without ceasing. Okay? So, by the way, that holy place experience is what Jesus does with us, by, joins us hand in hand, okay? And in the most holy place, Jesus says, think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to... What was the singular, most important piece of furniture in that most holy place? The Ten Commandments that we talked about. I mean, we talked about the commandments earlier, but we talked about the moral law, or, I mean, the ceremonial law. So, this prophecy, in conclusion, brings us to a time and a place. What time and what place did the answer bring us to? How long shall this vision be concerning the vision, concerning the daily sacrifice and the abomination of desolation? What was the answer? It brings us to a time. What time of the year did it bring us to? Which time of the year in the Hebrew year? What feast? Day of Atonement. What place did it bring us to? Most holy place. What was in that most holy place? Ten Commandments. It brings us to a time and a place. What were the people of God doing at this time? They were worshiping. They were self-sacrificial, I mean self-sacrificing service. They were surrendered. They were resting. And what place does it bring us to? The, the most holy place. And what laid in the most holy place? The, when the Ten Commandments of God are placed in their rightful place once again. How long shall be this vision? When will the overturning? When will the overturning? When will the overturning? When will the desolation? When will the desolation end? When my people start worshiping. When my people are involved in selfless service. When my people are surrendered. When my people find rest, Sabbath rest. And when my people finally fix this breach in the wall and put back the Ten Commandments in its rightful place, this controversy will be ended. This is our responsibility by the Lord's grace in this great controversy. One, two, three, four, five. I, this is the first introduction I gave you to the great controversy right there. That's our participation in our great controversy right there. What were the people doing while the priest was doing it? That's our participation in the great controversy. Worship, rest, Surrender, selfless service, put the law back in its rightful place by his grace. I left out some of the talk. I'm going to start the next talk with about five minutes of what I'm going to finish up here. The next one will be more of an interactive type of um, talk, and so it won't be as heavy. This was our heaviest talk, but I think it's important. Daniel 8.14 is our Adventist heritage. It's our role in the great controversy. Let's pray. Our Father, when will it be? How long will your sanctuary and the host be trodden underfoot? Let us as a people stop asking this question. Let us answer this question in our lives in our spirit. Change us, Lord, for we have not experienced what you want us yet. But by faith we know you shall bring us through. Help us to be ready. Pray in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.